So we're looking at Psalm 7 today. Psalm 7. I want to begin by just reading Psalm 7 together. Psalm 7. A Shagion of David, which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And then picking up the musical part of that from beginning of verse 8, which really belongs with, with I mean, Psalm 8, which begins with Psalm 7. For the choir director, according to Megittus. O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries. Arouse yourself from me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. May the Lord bless the word in his, his word in our lives this morning. What do you do when you are unjustly attacked or accused of something you didn't do? Better question is, how does God want you to respond when somebody attacks you unjustly or accuses you of something you haven't done? Injustice in our world is common. It's common because we live in a, in a sin-plagued, fallen world. But keep in mind, while accusations and things that false things that people do against you, the, these things happen on a regular basis, but not all of them are equal. Uh, for example, some of them are quite almost trivial. Uh, it reminds me of a time when I was, when I was young, growing up with my two sisters. My, my family lived in a, a small house, two-bedroom house, so my sisters and I at a young age shared a bedroom together. And there was at some point where we were just being kids and making noise when we should have been going to bed, and our, kid, our, our parents... Uh, probably my dad came and told us to be quiet. 
my sisters didn't listen. He kept making noise. And so my dad came in and somehow thought that I was at fault when I was actually asleep. And he ended up spanking me. And my sisters got off scot-free. Somehow. I don't know how I got the blame on that. It must have bothered me then. It doesn't bother me now. It's actually kind of funny. My sisters and I joke about it. I took that for them. Right? So some things are trivial. My dad didn't mean to. He thought I was guilty and he punished me. Right? But sometimes they're much more serious and often are. Um, sometimes the injustice that comes knocking on your door is just deeply troubling, life-shaking, or even deadly. How does God want his children to respond in the face of injustice like that? Something you just can't blow off and laugh about later. Do we do what the world does? Gather a mob? Burn? Destroy? And loot? No. No way. God doesn't want his people to adopt the world's ways. And then think about Christians and Places of the world where they're persecuted. They don't even have the right to do the things that Christians in this country can do. But what are Christians in other countries supposed to do when, when they are maligned, when they are attacked falsely, when they are accused of things they didn't do? Um, it's just far, it's, it's an all too common situation. And there's a, a recent incident that I just want to draw your attention to that happened in Pakistan. Perhaps you heard about this. Uh, there was a, a copy of the Quran that was found uh, torn and defaced in a Christian area of uh, in Pakistan. It's a Christian neighborhood. And in other words, a lot of people live in that neighborhood are mostly Christians. So some piece of the Quran that had been torn and defaced was found in that neighborhood. So the the local Muslims in that area, in fact, the teacher, um, put out a call for revenge, a call that was amplified on the mosque loudspeakers and through social media. And so over a thousand Muslims gathered to take revenge on the Christians for the so-called uh, defacing of, of the Quran. And they, again, they, didn't, had, they had no proof of who even did this. In these countries, it doesn't even take proof. It just takes an accusation. A Muslim who wanted to take revenge on somebody could drop the, a piece of defaced Quran and then blame somebody else for blasphemy. So this attack continued for more than 10 hours. Thousands of angry Muslims you know, ravaged the Christian area. Um, they looted people's homes. They took their, their things out of their homes and burned all, their, all that they belonged in the streets. And somehow they cornered two, two Christians and blamed them for the facing of the Quran and arrested them. So now these Christians are facing potential death sentence for something I'm sure they did not do. Right? A Christian who wants to do these things isn't going to do it like that. Uh, they did not do tear a piece of the Quran out and drop it on the ground. So, and, you know, to add on to this, multiple reports say the police just stood by and watched all this happen because they're Muslims. Later, under pressure, Pakistan did arrest some of the protesters, but who knows whether they'll actually be held guilty of the things that they're 
um, guilty of whether they'll face justice or not. So these Christians, they don't really have much of a recourse. They, they might have a lawyer that might, an earthly lawyer that might represent them fairly in court. There might be some political pressure put on by the United States if Christians on this side, you know, put kind of that kind of pressure. But barring those kind of things, the future's not very bright for these two Christians who are, as far as I know, still locked up and accused with this crime. It only happened just a few weeks ago. What are Christians to do? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. What would you do if that were you? What would you do if you were unjustly attacked and accused of wrongdoing in a situation you, you can't really vindicate your own name? There's, there's just no platform for that. Well, that's sort of the situation the psalmist finds himself in in Psalm 7. And from Psalm 7, we'll see that the person of faith who desires to honor God and yet is being attacked with false accusations should cry to Yahweh for deliverance with a clean conscience, should appeal to Yahweh for vindication, should rest in Yahweh's perfect justice, and in the end give thanks to Yahweh according to His righteousness. And we'll, we'll look at all these things in detail, but that's, that's the overview. Right? How do we respond? How does God want us to respond when the false accusation comes? Or maybe when you're physically attacked unjustly. Now before we dig into this, I just want to set some of the historical and musical context of Psalm 7. Psalm 7 was written by David. We know that because of the prescript that, that, that uh, tells us that. It, it tells us that this is a shiagion, and we don't really know what that means. I read a lot of things from commentators and heard a lot of pastors take guesses at what it means. We really don't know what it means. We think it's some kind of musical notation. It perhaps means a lament. So when he says, a shiagion of David, which he sang to Yahweh. So it could be a lament which he sung. Um, but beyond that, we just don't know what that means. Uh, the context of this is given to us in this psalm. This is one of, I think, 13 psalms where the historical context is given to us. And this, this is the context is this. This, this is a song which David sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, Bible quiz time. Who's Cush, the Benjamite? Bible quizzers? You can't find him in the Bible. He's not there. We don't know who he is. There's no record of any Cush who is a Benjamite living in David's time. It's the only account, only record of him is right here. Now, some people would say, well, this kind of, doesn't that kind of cast doubt on the Bible? There's no record of this guy? And so some people would use this to cast, you know, throw arrows, darts at the Bible, at the accuracy of the Bible. But in fact, we shouldn't do that. And the, the, it's kind of ironic. This is how God works. Sometimes God takes the accuser who at the time has a prominent position and wipes him from history and takes the one who is being attacked and put down and raises that person to a place of prominence and their name endures. So in this case, I think that's what that is. Right? This is a case where Cush the Benjamite was obviously an influential leader at the time because David talks about him and is very concerned about his attacks on him. Uh, but we don't know who he is other than his name. But David, who 
Cush tried to attack and put down and wipe from history, now is an enduring name among those who love the Lord, recognizing that, that, that David was, was um, God's choice to lead Israel. So history is kind of, it doesn't always work out that way, but there is a pattern there through, in the Bible and in history where those things occur. So in listening to Austin Duncan's sermon on this, he, he on this passage, he, he highlighted um, Spurgeon and Spurgeon's downgrade controversy. And Spurgeon's wife said Spurgeon didn't just, he, he really died of a, of a heartbreak. That's what they say he died of. He was heartbroken because of how he was attacked. But today, who were Spurgeon's attackers? Prominent men at the time. But unless you're a church historian, you don't know. But you know who Spurgeon's name is, right? His name endures. That's, that's what we're talking about. So the fact that we don't know who Bush Benjamite is, obviously he's related to the Benjamites. Um, King Saul was a Benjamite. So did Cush live in the time of King Saul? Was he uh, uh, you know, a servant of King Saul trying to, to kill David? We don't know. Could be. Uh, could could Cush be someone who lived in the time of Absalom's revolt? And then when Absalom revolted against his own father, then the Benjamites saw an opportunity to try to, to reseize the throne and to put a Benjamite on the on the throne. Again, we're just we're just taking a guess. We really don't know. And it in fact we don't need to know to understand what this psalm. And this psalm is is given, it was sung, it was not only written, but sung to Yahweh from David. And here we see how the believers to react to this unprovoked, this unjust attack. So I'm going to just deal with this sort of in in paragraphs together as it's laid out in the the Legacy Standard Bible. So when you are unjustly attacked, we are to cry to Yahweh. You are to cry to Yahweh for deliverance with a clean conscience. Right? And we'll dig into this. We see this in verses really 1 through 5. But first let's look at verses 1 to 2. Where David says, O Yahweh my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Now as we've seen in Psalms 3 through 6, as we've studied those the last several weeks, you, you probably picked up on a theme, right? David gets into a lot of trouble. And he needs to repeatedly call upon Yahweh for help. I mean, he is the king of Israel. Now, some of these Psalms may have been written when he was fleeing from Saul, so he may not have been sitting on the throne, but he is nonetheless the anointed king, although he might not have been the ruling king. And there was a period of, of several years between after Saul's death, but before David really um, reigned on the throne for both Israel and, and for all the tribes of, of Israel. But David commonly got into trouble. It's kind of interesting that you have Psalms 1 and Psalm 2. Right? Both of them are, are like a doorway into the book of Psalms. And then immediately from Psalm 3 until here, you're just hitting problem after problem after problem after problem. Right? So anybody who thinks that being a believer in God is going to remove all your problems should just read Psalms. And you will learn that life in a sinful world is full of problems. You will not walk away with the idea that if you just believe in God, then all your problems will go away. In, in many ways, if you believe in God, that's when your problems truly start. 
but you have a God that's bigger than your problems. And that's the point that, that Psalm is pointing us to. And that's why David keeps calling out to Yahweh because he knows that Yahweh is bigger than his problems. So anybody can claim to believe in God in good times. But can you proclaim faith in God when things in your life are a mess? When somebody accuses you? Somebody attacks you? Because the world kind of thinks that, well, if I'm following God, then God kind of owes it to me to make everything right in my life. Right? Sometimes we say that out loud, like false teachers who say that out loud. Sometimes we just think that. Because we know better. We know that's not quite right. But we feel that. When things go a mess, it's like, God, why are you doing this? But it's it's true believers that can proclaim faith and trust in God when events in their lives happen that they know God could have prevented. I mean, David knew that God was in complete control of everything. David knew that God could take out Cush the Benjamite immediately if he wanted to. He knew that, that God could have prevented the whole thing, and yet God did not prevent that. And yet David is calling out in faith and praise to him. He, he cries out to Yahweh. Look at what he says. He says, Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Now, now just notice the, the, the cries of faith. He's appealing to Yahweh. The, the, again, this is the covenantal name of God. This is the, the, the personal name of God. The name that David is really relying on. Yes, he's calling out to God. Right to the one true and living God, but revealed by the name Yahweh. So he's appealing, Yahweh, my God. Yahweh, the true and living God, he's my God, opposed to like the false gods of the nations. This is the true and living God. Oh, Yahweh, in you I have taken refuge. Just notice how he cries out. Um, and notice his request. He requests salvation. He says, in you I have taken refuge. That's a statement of affirmation. And then he says, save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Right? So notice what he's asking. He's asking, he's asking God to save him, to deliver him, to, to rescue him. And notice there's a, a blending here between uh, like a mob scene and an individual. So he says, save me from all those who pursue me. So. That's the picture of like this mob. There's there's a group of people that are pursuing him. And David said, save me from all of those. And at the same time, there's like a focus on one individual, perhaps the ringleader. Perhaps this is Cush, not mentioned by name. And he says there, lest he tear my soul like a lion. It's not since they, you know, lest they tear my soul like a lion, but he tear my soul. So there's, again, we see a, a blending of this a group attack and a, and a singular person attack as well. But notice how real and intense David's concern is. This is no minor thing uh, that you could just simply brush off. Because he says there in verse 2, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Now David knew something about lions. We don't know anything about lions except what you can learn by going to the Akron and Cleveland Zoo and you see the sleepy lions. They don't look so dangerous, right? But in reality, lions are very fierce. And in David's day, lions were on the prowl. David knew that. 
There was a time where he was tending sheep and a lion came and seized the lamb. And did David run and say, well, I don't think I'm fighting that one today. No. David says that by God's strength, he went and attacked that lion and saved that lamb from the lion's jaws. David knew from experience, from seeing it, what happens when a lamb is caught by a lion. That lamb is torn to pieces and is the lion's next meal. So David's using that imagery. He's using that imagery and he's saying, save me, deliver me, lest lest my enemy tear my soul like a lion. Now you use the word soul, he's not talking about just his spiritual parties. He's talking about his whole being. And, And notice what he's saying, rending me in pieces, just ripping me to shreds while there is none to deliver. So what David is, David's appealing to God as his great shepherd, just like David rescued the lamb by attacking the lion, taking the lamb out of the jaws of the lion. So David is asking God to, to rush down upon his enemies and take David out of the jaws of his enemy. He's asking God for deliverance, just like David delivered the lamb. David's asking God to deliver him from the jaws of his enemy. And, and the uh, Psalms often will use like poetic imagery like this to talk about people. This is, these aren't literal lions. These are people, but they are vicious like lions. And that, that's, that's what's going on. So David calls to Yahweh, and, and he does so from a clean conscience. And we see this in verses 3, 4, and 5. And you can see hints of it in other places, but this is primarily where it comes out. Let me just read it to you. This is where David's cry of faith is clearly seen. He's crying out from a clear conscience or a clean conscience. Verse 3. Oh, Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. Selah. So David it cries to Yahweh for salvation with a clear conscience. David envisions himself standing before God's tribunal. That's, that's the scene that the imagery provokes. He is standing before God as the great judge and he's pleading his case before the judge. And he's saying, Lord, I did not do the things which I am accused of. So David appeals here. Look at this. Oh, Yahweh. Again, the word Yahweh means I am the ever existent one, the ever present one. So David acknowledges that God knows all things. This is the perfect judge. He has all the data. He doesn't need a prosecuting attorney to present any facts to him. This judge knows all the facts already. And David knows that. And David is pleading his case before God. And and he is he is pleading his case using an interesting form of argumentation and logic. Right? One, one that runs the risk of putting David at, at risk of his own life if it's not true. Um, so look at he does this through using three conditional statements and three corresponding results. Okay? So you can see this for yourself, beginning of verse 3. If I have done this, have done what? Well, the things that he's being accused of and he's going to specify some of them in the next conditional statements. If I've done this, if 
there is injustice in my hand. So that's the first accusation. David is being accused of some kind of injustice, of doing some kind of sin. That's not true at all. Secondly, the, the specific accusation is he says, if I have rewarded him, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, that's part part one of, of that, that um, third conditional statement. In other words, David's being accused of doing something evil to a friend. And then the second part of that is the opposite. Or I have plundered my adversary without cause. That is, defeating an enemy in battle without any provocation. In other words, there was, there was an enemy of, of David, but that enemy hadn't done anything provoking, and yet David went and attacked that enemy. So David's using extremes here. He's saying, if, if I have rewarded evil, that is, paid back evil to a friend, or have plundered my adversary without a cause, then he's going to lead into, if these things are really true, then here are the requests. So understand what David's logic is. He's saying, if condition A is true, then, then the, the condition B should also be true. Then, then allow these things to happen. That's the logic that he's using. Look at what it, these these uh, requests that he puts out there. First, he says, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Again, imagine the imagery of the lion. Right? The lion is chasing the lamb. Right? That's the imagery. Let them pursue and overtake me. If I'm really guilty of what they say I'm guilty of, then I deserve that kind of treatment. That's what David is admitting to. He's saying, let them pursue my soul and overtake it. Secondly, let him trample my life down to the ground. So David uses the imagery of one being literally trampled down into the dust, right? And forgotten, dead, trampled to death. Thirdly, he says, and let them and cause my glory to dwell in the dust, right? So the word glory here is just it's talking about David's legacy. It's talking about the glory God had given him as the anointed king of Israel or the one who had been anointed as king of Israel. He's saying that legacy, just let it be in the dust. Right? Let it be in the dust. And there's significance in the dust because you walk by the dust all the time and don't even give it second thought. So that's what he's saying. If I've done these things, just, just let my enemy do what they want and let my, let my memory of me be gone. May they actually carry out the things that they want to do because I would deserve that. And he ends that with this word Selah, which is just kind of pause and reflect upon that a moment about the seriousness that he's calling upon God. Now, it's kind of strange for us in the New Testament era to hear someone talking like this before God, because we're so used to Paul's language of like Romans three, like Romans three tells us that that there are none who are righteous. Um, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's rather strange for our ears to hear someone um, pleading with God from a place of, of innocence. Because right? in the ultimate sense, no one is innocent. And we know that all have, have fallen short of the glory of God. All are sinners. But, but understand that what David is doing, he's not claiming to be innocent of all sin. He's simply claiming to be innocent of the things that he's being accused of in this particular case, here 
And now the things that are being charged against him by Cush and by others, he is not guilty of those things. He is innocent in those things. And in that limited sense, he is claiming he is claiming to be innocent of any wrongdoing before God. That's what he's doing. And he, he appeals to Yahweh as God with a perfectly clear conscience. Now, let's just pause a minute and just talk about the conscience. We need to understand what the conscience is. The, the conscience is your God-given warning system. And God gives this warning system to every single person. And your conscience informs you when you do what is wrong. And it informs you, of, of warns you of not to do those things. So your conscience is, is to help guide you in decisions of morality. To do this or not to do this. Do you cheat or not cheat? Do you kill or not kill? That's, that's the purpose of your conscience. And that's why God gave it. And that's why when you're, when you're proclaiming the gospel to people, you can tell them that they actually know right and wrong, even apart from the word of God, because God put the law in their heart. That's the conscience. Right? Now, people go to jail all the time with a clear conscience. Uh, in, a, in a jail ministry that I participated in early on after becoming a believer, I think eight out of ten of the men in the jail claim to be innocent. So there's a lot of, there's either a lot of guilty people with innocent consciences, or there's a lot of, or, or, or our justice system is broken. Now our justice system is imperfect. Um, people who are innocent at times are convicted of guilty and spend time, a lot of time in jail. There's lots of cases of that. But it's not 80% is my point. So how is it that you can have people who have been convicted of a crime that are in jail for that crime and yet have an innocent conscience? Well, you explain it this way. One is they have a misinformed conscience. A misinformed conscience. So you have to inform your conscience rightly or what it, the information that it tells you is going to be bad. Garbage in, garbage out is, is the way we can put it in computer language. So it's, it's basically if you're feeding your conscience bad information, then it's going to give you bad information. So we feed our conscience good information by learning the, the word of the Lord, by knowing how God wants us to live and allow our conscience to use the word of God to, to guide us and instruct us. But there's also something um, that we need to understand in that if your conscience is misformed, it's no longer going to be functioning like it should because it's, it's not going to have the guardrails that God intended. But also note that not only can your conscience be misinformed, but your conscience can actually stop functioning properly. And that's called a deadening of the conscience. People deaden their conscience when their conscience tells them to not do something that they want to do. They want to pursue sin. Their conscience saying, don't do it, don't do it. But you do it anyway. You deaden your conscience just a little bit. And you just do that over and over and over. And pretty soon your conscience no longer is sensitive. And your conscience just kind of stops. It shuts down. It's a warning system that no longer works. It's like um, you're driving in your car. The engine light comes on. And you just ignore it. And you ignore it. And you ignore it. And ignore it. And the light probably still keeps functioning. This is an imperfect illustration. But eventually your engine's going to go complaint. Especially if it, that engine light is flashing. Don't ignore that one. Sometimes you can ignore the solid, the solid light. 
don't ignore the one that blinks at you, right? You're going to burn up your engine. But the, the point is that when you deaden your conscience, it's like, it's like repeatedly burning your skin. Pretty soon you, you, you'll lose sensitivity in your fingers. Or someone who works with their hands all the time, they have big calluses. It's, it's the deadening of the conscience is like thick calluses uh, on, your, on your fingers or on your feet. You just can't feel as, as well as you could. So you can have people that think that they're innocent that truly aren't. That's not what's going on here with David. David's conscience is not misinformed. David's conscience is is not, um, I say David's David's conscience is functioning properly because there's plenty of hymns in other places that talk about David's sin. Here he confesses his sin. Uh, we saw in, in Psalm 6, or uh, David admitted that he was under the discipline of God. Psalm 32, we see David confesses his sin and he, he just rejoices in the fact that his sin is forgiven. So David's conscience is, is functioning correctly uh, when he is claiming innocence before God. And so as we, we think about this, as we think about how would we respond in this circumstance in a, when we are falsely attacked, we are to call to Yahweh from a clean conscience. But I just want to just pause to, to uh, warn us that before you cry out and say, well, I'm, I'm innocent in the matter, Take some time to pause and reflect upon your conscience. Is your conscience rightly informed by the word of God? And consider, is your conscience functioning properly? So you check those out before you claim innocence before God. Because God knows. And if you take the strategy that David takes, that's a pretty risky strategy, actually. He's saying, God, let all my enemies do what they want to me. If I'm guilty of this, are you prepared to do that? That's 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 high stakes. But David could do that because he knew he truly wasn't guilty of those things. And that's like these Christians in Pakistan. They're not guilty of these things that they're being accused of. So they can call out to, to Yahweh for help with a clear and clean conscience. They did not do these things. Well, how should you respond when you're unjustly attacked? Well, first, cry to Yahweh for deliverance with a clean conscience. Secondly, when you're unjustly attacked, appeal to Yahweh for vindication. Appeal to Yahweh for vindication. Again, strange language for us from looking at New Testament perspective, but it's this biblical. We see this from verses 6 to 11. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries and arouse yourself from me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the people. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God. Who saves the upright in heart? God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So David is appealing to Yahweh, to God, for vindication. Now, let's let's just look at this, break this into different parts to, to see what David is doing here. David appeals to Yahweh to ascend to his judgment seat. Again, David has the idea of a, of a courtroom scene here, and he is asking God to take his 
throne seat, to take his, his rulership and to rule as a righteous judge. Notice the terms that David uses. Arise in your anger. Remember in previous Psalms where David's like, discipline me, but not in your anger. Why did David say, discipline me, but not in your anger? In Psalm 6. Because it's in God's righteous anger that the sinners are brought to a final end and a, and a ruination. And so here, David is actually praying for God to, to reign in his righteous anger. Arise in your anger. Take the seat of, of the judge and judge. Look at another request. Lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries. David was being pursued by his adversaries. They were seeking his life. But he says, lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries. He uses the term, arouse yourself for me. It's the, it's the term of like waking someone up. Is God asleep? No, it just seems that way from David's perspective. He's using poetic language. He's saying, God, wake up. Hear me. Arouse yourself for me. That you would, that you would take care of this matter. That you would vindicate the matter. And he uses another request. He says, let the congregation of the peoples encompass you so this is this is one of two things and it's hard to know exactly which one it is is this god is this god gathering the nations for judgment before his his throne could be that or is it the congregation of the believers gathering around god to see him judge rightly it's hard to know which one of those uh, that is but he is saying and he makes another request over them return on high so is god again at, a, at is god not ruling where David is at, what where he was at. Of course, God was. It got. It appeared to David that God was far away, and so he's he's appealing to God to come close, return on high, rule on your throne, rule on your just and righteous throne. Then David appeals for God's vindication, for God to grant him vindication. Look, look at his request. He says, give me, give justice to me, O Yahweh. Again, that's strange language, right? When your kids say, you make a decision and your kids say, that's not fair. You look at them and say, you don't want what's fair, right? And, and that we say, I mean, we, we don't get what's fair by grace. We get, you know, by through faith in Jesus Christ, we're granted much that we do not deserve. And we don't get actually what we deserve. But in this case, David is calling for God to, to met out justice. He, and it's not wrong for him to do so. He is asking God for justice. And he says, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Again, that's, that's again, not language we're familiar with. And you don't want to use it carelessly. But David knew that he was innocent in these matters he was being charged against. And he is... He is asking God to give him justice, uh, to, to show that he is right, to show that he is a man of integrity in this matter. So that, that's, that's where we get the idea of vindication. He is appealing to Yahweh for vindication. And, and he moves from that to like a, a place of confidence in his vindication. Uh, while David is appealing to Yahweh, he uses specific terms or he affirms specific characteristics of God that really affirm that actually God will vindicate him. Look at verse 6. You have appointed judgment. David's talking to Yahweh, talking to God, 
And, and this is God's characteristic that David affirms. You have appointed judgment. Meaning it's God's will that sinners be judged. It's God's will that the wicked be judged. It's God's will that the righteous be shown to be righteous and are vindicated. Verse 8, Yahweh judges the people. That's his characteristics. He will judge the people. Not only is he appointed judgment, he's actually going to do it. Verse 9, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. The righteous God tests the hearts and minds. The two terms, hearts and minds, are really just brought together to show the internal work that God can do in judging people. Uh, the, the word minds there is actually interesting. In the Hebrew, it talks about the kidneys. So if it's the kidneys, why do they translate it minds? Because in the Hebrew, we have thought the kidneys and the heart spoke of the most innermost part of the person. It, it that's You made your, your decisions on morality from your kidneys, right? We, we talk about using the mind. But when we say the mind, we're not talking about the brain. The brain's your physical part. The mind is who you are spiritually. So we're talking about the most innermost part of a person, that spiritual part God is able to judge. God, the righteous judge, God tests the hearts and the minds. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He can look at each individual. He does look at each individual. He knows everything about you. Everything about you. Your motives. Your your moralities. What you do in the dark is not dark to him. God knows everything. And in verse 10, he says, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. That's God's characteristic. that, That he is a shield. And it's interesting the way that David words it here. He says, my shield is with God. And it's even written, you could say, if you do it, translate it literally, it would be my shield is on God, which is a really interesting phrase. What it means is that, that God's carrying his shield. Like, just like um, when a king went into battle, if they weren't doing the battle, he didn't carry all his own equipment. He had soldiers next to him that carried some of his equipment, you know, a shield bearer and, and all this. So what David is saying is God's right there and God has that shield. And when, I, when it's needed, that shield is going to be there to protect me. And in this case, it's, a, it's referring to a smaller shield, a shield used in hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. So God is his shield. Verse 11, the first part, God is a righteous judge. God's not a judge you can bribe. God's not a judge that you can show up on Judgment Day and, and, and bring all your, your good stuff because your good stuff's going to outweigh your bad stuff. God's not going to ignore your bad stuff. So he, he's just unbribable. He is, he is righteous. And then the second part of verse 11, and a God that has indignation every day. Every day. You know that's a characteristic of God? Even today. He has indignation every day. Because of sin. We, we learn from Psalm 5 5 that, that God hates all workers of iniquity. Indignation is anger at sin. So God is angry every single day with, about sin. And yet, He holds off His final judgment because He's so gracious. He's holding back His judgment to give people time to hear the gospel, to, to hear that Christ died for their sins. That Christ went to the grave 
for them, paid the price for their sins, was raised in newness of life. And to all who believe are granted salvation, are granted forgiveness. And God's wrath is transferred to Jesus Christ. And and instead they get the, the righteousness of Christ and they get God's grace. But that just shows you how gracious God is, how patient God is. That he has indignation every day. He has every right just to wipe us all out. But he doesn't do that. He holds it back. All that to say, these are things that help David understand and be confident that God will vindicate him. So when you you pray for vindication, again, don't make it entirely about you. Seek first what is best for the kingdom of God. And pray that way. Lord, vindicate me, but do so in a way that maximizes my testimony for you. That that maximizes the, the spread of the gospel. And vindicate me in a way that bears the most glory for you and that the clearest testimony of Jesus Christ to those who are watching me go through this. Well, thirdly, when you're unjustly attacked, rest in Yahweh's perfect justice. Rest in God's perfect justice. Verses 12 to 16. Just kind of read through it to refresh our mind. If, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. Now, let me just pause here and say there's there's a, some changes that in the subject of the pronoun. The, the pronoun keeps moving on, but it's obvious that the subject has changed. You have to pay attention to this or it's going to be a little confusing. In one place, the psalmist is talking about God. In another place, he's talking about sinners. All right, And there's not a specific change of subject, but the context gives you that. He's still using the, the singular masculine pronoun he right so if a man does not repent he does he will sharpen his sword so he he there is talking about god he has bent his bow and prepared it he has prepared for himself deadly weapons he makes his arrows fiery shafts now there's a switch in the subject of who the psalmist is talking about now he's going to talk about the sinner behold he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own skull. So so notice how how David is just at this point just resting in God's perfect justice. He's called for vindication and now he's just resting. He hasn't seen that vindication yet, but he's resting in God's perfect justice. Um, That phrase there in, in beginning of verse 12, if a man does not repent, right? Uh, literally, that's if he does not turn. The idea of turning, then is understanding with our repenting. Repenting is literally turning 180 degrees from the direction you're going. You're pursuing sin, and then you turn 180 degrees away, and you go the other direction, away from that sin. So that's literally what repentance means. Um, repentance is the only way to escape God's judgment. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, realize that the only way you're going to escape the judgment of God is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is certain. So David envisions um, the, the God here as a divine warrior. That's what he does in verses 12 to 13. This is the only place where, where David does that or the Psalms do this. God is pictured as a divine warrior, which is maybe a, a frightening scene, should be a frightening scene for unbelievers. And just look at the, the poetic language, but again, these poetic 
the poetic language teaches us an eternal truth. If a man does not repent, he, meaning God, will sharpen his sword. Right? Soldiers sharpen their swords before battle right? so that they can inflict more damage with less force. He has bent his bow and prepared it. In other words, God has this massive bow. Right, the strong warriors of old—they had these really these bows that most of us could not even um, bend back today because we use the compound bows. We don't have to use so much force to get them to, to pull back. But you're talking about these these bows where God, the psalmist is picturing God as an archer, and he's got his bow and he's prepared his arrow and he's ready to fire it. That's how eminent that judgment scene is. There's there's no escaping it. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons, just in general. He's armed to the hilt. You will not survive this judgment. No one can stand before him. And he makes his arrows fiery shafts. So in times of old, when they fired arrows, often they would cover them in pitch, light them on fire, and whatever hit would then be on fire with that pitch, inflicting more damage. So it just it's this imagery of a divine warrior. It's meant to warn the enemies of God, in this case, the enemies of David, that the only way out of this judgment is by repenting. And then continuing to talk about the those who pursued David, his, his adversaries, he uses a, a kind of an interesting illustration. David, David turns from talking about the wicked man, like um, talking about the just warrior facing a wicked man, and now pictures the wicked man as what, like a pregnant woman. And he uses three different terms to speak about this. He travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief. He gives birth to falsehood. So the word travail means to be pregnant, like you're in labor with this. And all this is imagery is poetic, but it's, it's meant to teach the truth that the wicked will bring forth wickedness. It's just what they do. He travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief, mischief being harm or trouble. He gives birth to falsehood, saying things that are not true. So someone who is wicked is going to produce wickedness. That's why Jesus says, out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart is wicked, therefore the mouth is wicked. The heart is wicked, therefore the wicked do wicked things. So this is in alignment with what even Jesus says. So the wicked give birth to evil like a pregnant woman has got to give birth to her baby. When a woman is pregnant, she has to give birth at some point. There's no avoiding that. Right? And that's the imagery that David is, is using here. The wicked have to produce wickedness. That's the course they are on. And they will be judged. And God will bring appropriate evil upon those who do evil. So just think about this a moment. Um, God is unbribable. He is unbribable. And he even uses imagery there at the end about God bringing evil upon those who do evil. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. In other words, he's dug this pit to try to trap somebody, to try to hurt them, try to trap them, to steal from them, to murder them, whatever. So this evil man has dug this pit, but the evil man has fallen into it. Then Then he says, his mischief will return upon his own head. Whatever evil he's planning to do, whatever trouble he's planning to do, that's going to come back on him. Um, his violence will descend upon his own skull. All this reminds us of, of Proverbs, like Proverbs twenty six twenty seven, that says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, 
and he who rolls the stone, it will turn back on him. Uh, the rolling of the stone means like you're, you're, you're pushing the stone up on a hill, another to push it down on somebody to attack them, and instead it falls upon you. Proverbs 28, verse 10 says, He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit. So very similar imagery. God will bring appropriate evil upon those who do evil. Now, just want to pause here and reflect upon the intensity of God's judgment. And this is even reflected in the New Testament. For example, in Hebrews 9, read Hebrews 9, verses 27 to 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Right? So what the scriptures are saying is there's a judgment day coming that no one escaped, that no one can escape. Well, you can escape it, but only if you flee to Christ. So if you flee to Christ and trust in Jesus Christ, He has borne on His body the sins once for all. And the next time He's going to appear, it's going to be for salvation. It's not going to be, when Jesus appears, He's not going to have to deal with your sin because He's already dealt with it. He's going to appear for your salvation. But if you are not in Christ, then Upon your death or upon Christ's return, you will face judgment. It's unavoidable. That's the reality of the situation. And then to kind of amp up the, the seriousness of this, the author of Hebrews says later in, in Hebrews 10 26, he says this. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Think about it. That's the Holy Spirit's word. If you reject Christ, the only thing that you have to expect in your future is the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And was insulted and has insulted the spirit of grace. That is, they just totally rejected Christ. Rejected the, the spirit's convictions about Christ. And, and he, the author of Hebrews isn't talking about pagans. He's talking about religious people who are doing this. And he, and he says there in verse 30, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Who said it? Who said that? God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's why judgment is unavoidable. And again, the Lord will judge his people. I'm still reading. The Lord will judge his people. And he ends with this in verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's talking about judgment. Not being with God as a child of God who's forgiven. But if you're not forgiven in God, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, it's not very popular today to talk about judgment. But we have to. Because God's word says it. Warns. This is a warning. The, the Puritans often would go to passages like this and passages like Psalm 7. And, and from these passages, they would warn unbelievers, turn or burn. That's 
the only two options you have. There is no other. And we don't say that, I don't say that callously. But that is your choice. Turn from your sins and flee to Christ or face judgment. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God who knows everything about you. Everything. So, some of you have heard the gospel repeatedly, but don't believe it or haven't yet believed it. And every time you hear the gospel and don't respond to it, you are hardening your heart. You are deadening your conscience. You are telling the Holy Spirit that he's not speaking truth. But it's not too late because God is a patient God. Though he has indignation every day, he is a patient God. And he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. So believe today. Don't procrastinate. Believe in Christ today and you will be saved. And believers, know that though judgment is hard to talk about, that's an important part of proclaiming the gospel. You can't just proclaim the good part. Say, you know, God, Jesus died to, to, to give you eternal life unless you live forever. You need to also warn unbelievers or those who haven't yet believed, you need to warn them that judgment is coming. If they do not believe, they will be judged. And this isn't just uh, annihilation, like people are just annihilated and they're no longer in existence. That's not what the scriptures teach at all. They don't go out of existence. They, they face a judgment, an eternal judgment. That's the reality. Well, kind of back to the topic of hand is that David was trusting in the perfect justice of God. And if you're facing a situation where you've been accused of things you haven't done, you've been attacked unjustly, don't get discouraged. Just keep trusting, trusting God's perfect righteousness, his perfect justice. In the end, justice will be done. No one's going to get away with murder in the long run. No one's going to get away with adultery in the long run. No one's going to get away with fornication in the long run or lying or cheating or stealing. Just fill in or slander, whatever it is. If you're guilty of some of these things, call out to the Lord and ask him to forgive you. I mean, maybe maybe some of you here have been on the attacking side. I've just The whole message is really on the receiving side, but examine yourself. Have you... Have you slandered someone unjustly? Have you attacked someone unjustly? If you have, repent of your sins and ask the Lord to forgive you and change your heart and go to that person and ask them to forgive you. This psalm incredibly ends on a very high note. So, really the last point. So when you're unjustly attacked, give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness. In verse 17, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. David, David made two joyful commitments. And the psalm really leaves us in a place where David, like the other psalms, it's not really resolved. David isn't yet vindicated. We don't know the timing of the vindication. But he ends the psalm on a high note 
having two joyful commitments to worship God in light of God's vindication and his perfect justice. First of all, he committed himself to give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness. David's done with his own righteousness. He just he talked about his limited righteousness to, to plead his case before God. But here, David is rejoicing in God's righteousness. God's going to do what is right. And that brings joy to David's soul. That should bring joy to your soul. With our wicked politicians, right? God is going to do righteousness. So when you get discouraged with politics, stop thinking about politics. Think about God. God is righteous, and he will do what is right, and he will bring about righteousness, and in his kingdom to come, there will be only righteousness. So true justice will be done. Although politicians will come and go, and they will continue to do evil things for their own uh, for their own motives, for their own purposes, and largely get away with it, only temporarily, God will bring his perfect righteousness. And David committed himself to sing praise. To sing praise. I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. Look at the term, Most High. Right? This is David's God, Yahweh Most High, who rules over all. None can escape his power. None can escape his judgment. I will sing praise. Brother, we sing in this church because God wants his people to sing. And you might not think you have a wonderful voice, but it's the voice God gave you, and you better use it to sing praises to God because he is worthy of that. He's worthy of you singing praises to his name, no matter what kind of voice you have. So it it is commendable that David wants to sing praise even though he's still under false accusations and attack. And the person who's going under this, whether that's you or someone you know, needs to do that. They need to just rest so much in God's perfect justice that they can just really focus on the Lord's righteousness and sing praises to him that he rules on high over all. Man, what what a great God Yahweh is. Here in David, we see the voice of, of faith. It can express itself in songs in the midst of very difficult situations. Read Psalm 7. Meditate on Psalm 7 and add your voice to the chorus of those who are falsely slandered or attacked. Commit yourself to that today for the glory of God and and, in the power of the Spirit. He will help you to do that. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we Thank you for giving us your word, for instructing us of your righteousness. We thank you that we can just call to you as our perfect judge who knows whether we're guilty or innocent. We can call to you to vindicate, to bring vindication, the false accusations, the false attacks, and that we can just rest in your perfect justice. And then rest, while resting, really just to rejoice in you, to give thanks to you, to sing praises to your name. Lord, help us as your people to sing praises to you and give you thanks, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Lord, tune our hearts to sing your praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org.
This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.